And that, Marjorie, just so you will know, and your children will someday know, is the night the lights went out in Georgia. Watching television, watching television. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of A Very Special Episode, a podcast where I get to curl up on the sofa and talk telly with some of my favourite people. My very special guest this week was Morgan M. Page, a writer, historian and activist based in London. She hosts the Trans History Podcast, One from the Vaults, which is a fantastic podcast. Definitely recommend you checking that out. Almost every episode of that podcast, I feel, would make an incredible TV show in its own right. And maybe one day it will. Um, and she's also the co-writer of the upcoming feature film, Framing Agnes, and the co-writer of the book, Boys Don't Cry, which comes out in spring 2022. I absolutely loved chatting to Morgan about the differences between Canadian and UK TV, prestige drama, teen drama, baking shows that aren't the Great British Bake Off, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And please stay tuned for an absolutely incredible rendition of the That's the Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia monologue from Designing Women from Morgan herself, which I never heard before, surprisingly enough. Uh, but now I feel like I could devote my devote the rest of my life to it. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast and I'll let you know what very special episode is coming up next week. But for now, let's go back to about two weeks ago when Morgan and I talked. Enjoy. Hello, Morgan. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Very excited to get chatting about telly. To kind of kick us off, you grew up in Canada. That is true, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about Canadian TV? What is TV in Canada? Oh boy. I mean, (laughs) I feel like uh, Canadian TV is divided into two eras. There is the pre-Shits Creek era and the post-Shits Creek era. Um, (laughs) Because I feel like now that Schitt's Creek has become such a hit, there's actually some respect for Canadian TV. But Uh. prior to that, absolutely (laughs) not. Um, But actually, there's so many, like, good Canadian TV classics, like Are You Afraid of the Dark? Which Uh. I grew up watching. That's Canadian. I didn't realize that was Canadian. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, half the American shows are shot in Canada. But... Um, Are You Afraid of the Dark was actually a Canadian co-production, and um, I believe it was shot near Montreal. And, like, mm. all the kids who were on it are, like, uh, at least half of them are still actors, and they're kind of, like, well-known within Canada. And they're, like, they've been MTV, like, VJs and things over the years. So mm. you just see them pop up every now and then in Canadian culture. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um. like... As a Canadian, I'm legally required to know who all the Canadian actors are. Um, <laughs> like Ryan Gosling, for example, uh, or Ryan Reynolds. All the Ryans really are <laughs> Canadians. Um, but, you know, what was really amazing about Canadian TV is when I was just coming of age in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, we had a channel called Showcase that mm-hmm. suddenly got added to everybody's cable packages that showed kind of like more artsy kind of stuff. And then at night from like uh, 9 p.m. onwards, it just showed like every gay movie and TV show ever. So I spent my entire childhood getting a like really thorough education on new queer cinema by watching Showcase face up against the TV volume all the way down to like one single bar so my parents wouldn't hear what I was watching. (laughs) 
Oh, that sounds amazing. What sort of stuff were you watching? Um, well, on that channel, obviously, Queer as Folk, the American version and the British version played on there. Mm. And the British show by Ricky Beetle Blair, uh, Metrosexuality. I remember that played on that and had a really big effect on me. I haven't revisited that show in many years, but uh, it's probably just as manic as I remember. Um <laughs> <laughs> That's a real blast from the past. I feel like people in the UK don't even remember that show. So that's it's yeah. wild when you think about it. Like it was actually <laughs> wildly progressive. It's basically a show that um, is supposed to capture the kind of feel of I think Notting Hill in the um, in the late nineties as this kind of like queer multiracial community of friends uh, who are all newly getting into texting each other and calling each other on cell phones. Mm. It's a big part of the plot. Um, (laughs) And they all have this like punk hair and crazy makeup and all of this is, to me, it was like, you know, Queer as Folk was like a serious drama or whatever, but metrosexuality looked like the world I actually wanted to be in where it was very bright and colorful and fun and, there was like wacky hijinks and no real consequences for anything because it's like a very light <laughs> comedy, like half hour show. Yeah, so it was it was quite a moment. And it's like this also this show about family. Um, Ricky Beetle Blair, the creator, plays this like quote unquote old bitchy queen uh, who is the parent <laughs> of the lead character who's actually a young straight man played by the now thoroughly cancelled Noel Clark. Yeah, so it's about their relationship as a gay father and a straight son, which is really interesting because the 90s is dominated by these narratives of like the homophobic family with the gay child. So it's this Mm. really cool flipping of that. Yeah, the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, oh, this is actually maybe a really good show. I should rewatch it. (laughs) Yeah. I want to revisit that now. I wonder if it exists anywhere. Yeah, that's exciting. I'd, I'd be really interested to know as well what you think of TV in the UK. If you, if you watch much TV now and what your kind of take on it is. Well, here's the thing. In Canada, we're like a funny little halfway point between Britain and the US. So we get a lot of British TV there. Um, and then mm. also uh, my mother was British. And so I grew up on a lot of British shows and films and things like that. So it's always kind of been part of my world. And I definitely watch a lot of British shows now. I feel like we're in a really interesting kind of renaissance moment of British TV because, you know, you had Michaela Cole's show, um, both of her shows, you know, Chewing Gum and uh, I May Destroy You, I think it's called. Uh, And then you also had like Fleabag, which obviously became this giant international hit. So I think there's like this uh, kind of cream of the crop British shows that are going on. But then to me, anyway, the British landscape is dominated by police procedurals. Yes. yes. You love a police procedural. (laughs) Um, I've definitely appreciated those. I love um, to watch an older, slightly haggard looking Uh, or like not haggard but like weathered (laughs) Uh, older woman who's like very gruff solving crimes like that to me does a lot (laughs) even though I'm an abolitionist and fully believe we should abolish the police I just love that genre of like female character on tv (laughs) so I do watch that 
I do wonder what it says about the UK that we love those things so much. Like, we, yeah, we do make a lot of them. (laughs) Like, I was doing a thing recently where I was like, so I've got to submit some ideas for something. And I was like, looking through stuff that's currently on. And it's all that. Like, it's all (laughs) middle-aged woman, cop or detective of some kind solving a crime. Like, usually a really grim crime as well. Oh, yeah. It's some kind of sex murder every time. I think it does say a lot about British culture. On the positive side, I think it speaks to the fact that if you are an actress in the UK, you can age, which is not true in North America. Like in North America, you have to go the Nicole Kidman route, which is to get super, super pumped. And it looks amazing. Mm -hmm. But like you have to have that really pumped, young, but not actually young kind of look if you're going to survive at all. And obviously that takes quite a toll on a lot of women. But I think here in the UK, there is a little more appreciation for older women actresses. So I love that. But on the downside, I feel like the obsession with like highly salacious sex crime shows from the perspective of cops going about punishing them. Mm -hmm. And often cops who are like, you know, to the writer's credit are really complicated and like, you know, sometimes kind of anti-heroes. But in a way, the politics of that is really bad because it's making us identify really positively with police brutality often. (laughs) Um, So I don't know, it really fits for me within the sort of like tabloid obsession thing. I guess like the UK is so small geographically and so densely populated, like less than one tenth of the landmass of Canada, but twice the number of people. Oh, wow. wow. And I have, I think there's this very like, I'm watching my neighbors kind of vibe. Like there's this thrill of being scandalized by the bad behavior of the people around you, which I think comes from being so densely, you know, on top of each other. So anyway, that's my, that's my deep read on how these cop shows come about. (laughs) No, that's very interesting. I think you're probably right with that, actually. Like there's a very curtain twitchy sense to a lot of, a lot of TV in the UK, actually. What sort of stuff do you like watching? Like what are your go-to genres? I love very grim dramas, (laughs) Um, things that are like super depressing. I'm usually extremely here for kind of along those lines. I do love a noir, Um, Mm. whether it's like the teenage funhouse version of that, like Riverdale or something that's a little more intense, uh, like Cruel Summer recently was really good, which Imogen Binney wrote on. Oh, wow. Uh, Not surprising because she's amazing, but just, I don't know, it just seems a little like, oh, it wasn't a diversity hire to get one trans woman in the room, but (laughs) because the show has nothing to do with trans people. So anyway, it was cool. And Supernatural Dramas, big fan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do watch most of the prestige shows, I gotta say. Uh, I'm that type of person where I like, I want to watch really good actors writing, uh, doing something that's really well written. So like (laughs) Mad Men or things like that. But generally shows that are about women uh, and or queer people, especially. So like, I've never, and I probably will never watch Breaking Bad. Yes. (laughs) There's just, I just can't imagine a world in which I'm interested in watching a show that's entirely about straight men, basically. Like, I just have no interest. (laughs) Could not be me. My take on Breaking Bad, and this is, you know, probably not fair because I've only ever watched one episode, but (laughs) I feel like it is the show Weeds. 
but for people mm-hmm. who hate women and jokes like it's yeah. just and I just found it a real unpleasant watch yeah and I don't mind watching stuff that's grim but it is just yeah I, I did not see what people got from that show but enough people obviously liked it that I wonder if it's like maybe it just needs some time but it's hard to say because I feel like half of these prestige shows hit a kind of enduring legacy like the Sopranos like Mad Men and then the other half are like so huge at the time and then they completely disappear and you never hear about them again Mm. Uh, like I feel like Game of Thrones is going that way um, because people were so embittered by the ending of it I guess (laughs) and that's another show where it should be totally up my wheelhouse you know it's very supernatural it's a lot of like soapy intrigue which I enjoy Mm. oh god I've tried to watch it. I've watched two episodes several <laughs> times. I've watched the first two episodes being like, okay, it's going to hook me. And people are like, oh, don't worry about the first one. Just get to the second one and it's better. And it is not. <laughs> <laughs> you could not tie me down to a chair and force me to watch that. I'm just fascinated by the trajectory of that, that show. We've got like, alongside the ubiquitous Harry Potter shop, we now have a few Game of Thrones specific shops and I've never known something fall out of the cultural sphere so quickly like you couldn't move for talk for like talking about that show at one point and now it's just gone like who cares what's your like comfort watch show what's the show or shows that you go back to well the big one is Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. uh, I watch that at least once all the way through every year, um, which is a little uh, wacky sounding, but I just love it. I love the whole thing. I think I learned so much about being a writer from it because yes. the writing is so spectacular in some of the episodes. Most of the episodes, I would say, is very thoughtful throughout the whole series. I mean, there's a couple pieces here and there where you're like, oh, that was a choice. Um, <laughs> that's probably the biggest comfort watch for me or like the one I return to the most. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of shows that I watch fairly regularly. Like every couple of years, I'll rewatch Queer as Folk, for instance, or The L Word. Um, <laughs> Love The L Word. <laughs> the L Word I watch uh, in order to suffer. And because I, <laughs> I think it's hilarious to talk about all of the choices that they made on The L Word. <laughs> And to speculate about things, like I identify as a bet with a Jenny rising. (laughs) Oh, wow. I'm a a full Jenny Schechter. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm obsessed with that character. Like, yeah, and that show. Justice for Jenny Schechter. (laughs) I I 100% believe that Jenny was right every single time, except the time (laughs) she killed the dog. That was, that's the one where I'm like, oh, okay, that was maybe bad. I think a lot of her choices, if you go back and rewatch, are completely understandable. And if you watch the show and really identify with her, you realize that for several seasons, every single character is taking advantage of her. Yes. And like, all we're seeing are her reactions to them treating her horribly. Um, Especially the first season where she's clearly going through a lot. She's like breaking up with this boyfriend, realizing she's gay and kind of being used by all these women and also simultaneously rejected by them. Like, no wonder she became a giant bitch. (laughs) Like, who wouldn't? You know, justice for Jenny Schechter, I think. Definitely, definitely. Have you watched any of the remake, uh, Generation Mm -hmm. Q? 
Yeah, I watched the first season. Um, I'm excited to see the second season, but I haven't started yet. The first season, I mean, I thought it was fun. I thought it was soapy. I thought um, it really did feel a bit like a continuation of it. There, I think it's part of this genre of, um, uh, and I don't really mean this in a derogatory way, but it kind of makes me sound like a Tory to say it, but like of um, social justice tv writing no, <laughs> a little bit you're right i think you're right yeah yeah where it's like how many identity bingo stamps can we get um in each character and that is the point of generation q is that they're bringing in these younger characters who are more diverse to make up for the problems of the past so like the original show of the l word had a huge trans problem where all the trans characters but especially max were treated absolutely horrendously mm. so in the new one they have some trans characters and they're very well treated. Um, and they even have a trans actress playing a cis role. Oh, wow. um, yeah, Jamie Clayton. Uh, it's a little, it, no one's really sure, at least in the first season. Again, I haven't watched the second season, but they never make it clear whether she's cis or trans. And they seem to just be treating her as a cis character. And I don't think it was written as a trans character originally. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, it's soapy fun. I'm into it. Uh, and I'll definitely watch the second season. But I think there is that kind of genre of the like social justice bingo card uh, writer's rooms happening in America right now. Yes. Like um, the Charmed reboot was kind of like that. Yeah, the, just all these kind of how many can we fit in kind of things. Yeah. Which yeah. is... Sometimes it's just very ham-fisted. There's shows that manage to do it where it feels a lot more natural, like um, Euphoria, mm -hmm. which I think is one of the greatest shows on TV right now. Yes, um, definitely. And it's the only time I've watched a show where I'm like, oh, this is my teenage years being depicted. Mm. Like, I know there's all these people on Twitter and young people or whatever who are like, no kids are having that much sex and doing that much <laughs> drugs. And I'm like, I hate to break it to you, but I was a teen <laughs> prostitute. I'm the real JT Leroy. Like, that, this is literally my life. When I watched the first or second episode and Jules goes to the, like, hotel room with some old man who's like paying her for sex or whatever i was like oh wow they're just fully cribbing from my diary <laughs> i should be getting royalties for that <laughs> no it's such a good show it's such a good show and i think like what a lot of people in their criticisms of a show like that are not sort of appreciating is it's like it is an artful representation of being mm. that age it's like maybe nobody is that beautiful or like that well-dressed all the time or you know having that much exciting sex um yeah it just it always feels like a music video but in a good way it's an interesting kind of in relation to the like you know the thing in the 90s and early 2000s which continues today in shows like Riverdale of the like Dawson's creek ification of teen shows yeah where you get these teens who are played by actors in their 20s who are written as incredibly well-spoken, endlessly funny and interesting and mm -hmm. whatever. And they have, they just like come across like adults really. And it seems really unrealistic. And I feel like um, Riverdale is the ultimate example of that that's current right now, where these mm -hmm. kids are like wildly well-spoken, perfectly dressed uh, and have strangely giant access to things like, uh, Archie is a teenager who can own a boxing gym. Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> no sense at all but I feel like euphoria feels more grounded in reality like when I watch that show 
I mean, it is like obviously fantasy. It is TV. But I watch that show and I see those characters and I'm like, those are the people I grew up with, Mm -hmm. especially Zendaya in the lead role. I feel like she really is portraying people that I hung out with and got into trouble with at that age. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel quite so pure fantasy land in the way that Riverdale does where, you know, Riverdale is just one absurdity after another, one plot hole after another, um, but is endlessly entertaining. Yeah. You mean as a teenager, you didn't run your own underground speakeasy that was a, a plot point in Riverdale for, I think, yeah. three episodes and it just went. Um, I love that show. I absolutely love that show. <laughs> yeah. Although I will say, you know what? Um, I think it's a shame that the spin off of Riverdale didn't go further, which is The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Because that's mm-hmm. extremely my shit. I do realize there was another spinoff, the Katie Keene one or whatever, mm-hmm. but we'll pretend she doesn't exist. <laughs> um, but um, I think Chilling Adventures of Sabrina was the superior show in every way, at least for me, because it's witchy. Uh, it felt a bit more queer, actually. Yeah. And it was like somehow campy and also uh, not too campy in a way. I don't mm-hmm. know. I just thought it was perfect. I wish it was still going because I still think I think it still had legs. <laughs> Although I always loved the idea that they would do a crossover with Riverdale where everyone does feel like they're in their at least late 20s and the mm-hmm. kids in Sabrina look like actual teenagers. And I just, yeah, I think it would have been an interesting territory yeah. to like cross over those two worlds. And in the, the I read the comic that Chilling Adventures mm-hmm. is based on. And um, me too. Uh, Betty and Veronica being witches, and one of one of the pussy cats being the witches that <laughs> summon Madame Satan is absolutely perfect, and I wish that had been in the show. Oh my god, yeah! And the woman they had playing Madame Satan was just like, or she becomes Lilith by the end, I guess, hmm. was just perfect. Yeah, she's like, brilliant. I she's a Scottish actress, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Michelle Gomez. She, yeah, I'm obsessed with her face. <laughs> like, I just cannot stop looking at her when I see her in anything. She is she is it to me. I've got to I've got to write a project for her at some point. That's She's on the so wish good. list. She's so good. What's something that you watch a lot of that is outside of your wheelhouse? Like something people wouldn't necessarily expect you to watch. My kind of secret watch is competition baking shows uh i'm really into it but not british bake-off to be clear that i find absolutely interminable i think it's everything that's wrong with this country oh absolutely Um, (laughs) i think i genuinely think you can try you can trace brexit back to bake (laughs) like all of that bunting with union jacks on it bake-off is for tories um And, you know, for me, the ones I like are mostly American and it's because they're super high pressure, uh, like Sugar Rush, where they get people who are very, very, very talented, but they put them under ridiculous time constraints (laughs) and there's like a clock going and they could win huge amounts of money and like all of this. I love the high stakes, Um, but I also love. Uh, And sometimes I feel like it's too silly for my personal brand, but I adore Nailed It. 
Oh, I think wow. nailed it is so funny. I can't stop watching it. I've rewatched every episode at least two, three times. Yes. Um, sometimes it becomes a bit repetitive and I have to take a break. But like, it is the only thing I watch that I think is so good natured. <laughs> yes, yes. It has that thing that I think people go to Bake Off for, like the good naturedness, mm-hmm. but it also feels fun in a way that Bake Off isn't necessarily... <laughs> I just I think it's all about her as well, the the woman that presents it. I forgot her name, but Nicole um, Byer, I yeah, think. Yeah. Yeah, she's brilliant. She's so funny. And what I love most about it is that everybody is in on the joke. Yes. Like they all know that they are terrible and that it's going to turn out really poorly. <laughs> um and that's the joy of it. Like when it turns out good, you're kind of disappointed. Yes. Um, but they also, all the challenges they give them are things that took professional chefs to like multiple days to create. And then they're telling them, you have an hour. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's just so funny. It's so, so funny. So I I watch all of that and I'm learning Spanish. So sometimes I watch the Spanish editions oh, of it wow. as well. Because they have it localized in all these different languages. It's not just like, audio translated like they have they go to different countries have totally different presenters and do it in the language so there's a german version a spanish version a mexican version which obviously is also in spanish uh there's a french version i think oh. yeah there's like a whole bunch they're all pretty much exactly the same <laughs> as the american version and just as funny so yeah it's a really good uh, language learning yeah. thing actually <laughs> I think that's the beauty of reality TV, that sort of thing, where it's so um, sort of formulaic that you can watch it in other languages. Yeah, once you pick up, like, you know, what stove is (laughs) in the language, it, like, all comes together real fast. (laughs) That, I think, is probably the most surprising of my viewing habits. What's an iconic TV moment you go back to again and again? So in the lead up to this, I was trying to think and I was like, why is nothing coming to me? Uh, And then I think one that I think of all the time, but it's kind of cheating because I've never really watched the show. But I know this one moment, which is uh, the moment from Designing Women, where there's the monologue about the night the lights went out in Georgia. It's an American show from the 80s that Mm. is about like these southern women who are very campy it's super over the top and at one point there's like this miss georgia competition and uh julia sugarbaker who's the main character her sister uh was miss georgia and then i guess uh the new miss georgia was really rude to them and julia (laughs) corners her in the dressing room and is like basically going in on her and putting her in her place. And she delivers this epic monologue uh, where she's like, not only was my sister Miss Georgia, she was the Miss Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) And when she twirled her baton, that baton was on fire. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds amazing. (laughs) Threw it up in the air and it hit the lighting unit. And that was the night the lights went out in Georgia. It's just like, every line is incredible. It's a big thing in the American drag scene as well, that like people will deliver that. 
um, as part of their act. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, I know it from drag. <laughs> I don't really know from the show. Um, so I feel slightly embarrassed about that. But it's the only TV moment that popped up in my head where I was like, oh, yeah, I think about this all the time. <laughs> no, that's a great one. That's a great one. I feel like I've learned something today. I'm going to go and watch that. Uh, yeah, this. I'll send you the link. It's endlessly funny. Even if you know nothing about the show, it's like a <laughs> two and a half minute monologue. And it's just like... Perfect. I guess it's probably time to talk about your very special episode. Okay, so I have chosen an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, my very favorite TV show of all time. Um, and I've chosen a controversial episode as a favorite, um, which is, uh, or as a very special episode, which is um, the episode from season six called Tabula Rasa, which comes right after the famous musical episode, Once More with Feeling. Is this a controversial one? I remember both at the time and subsequently that people have often said they were really disappointed with it. Mm. But I think it's one of those things where like they shot so high with the previous episode that anything afterwards was going to be like, oh, this, you know? Yeah. It's quite the big come down after that musical. I was really excited that you chose this one, actually, because it's one of my favorite episodes of Buffy. And I, I have this thing that if somebody says that the musical is their favorite episode, then I'm very dubious about how much of a fan of Buffy they are. Because <laughs> like, it's good. But also, like, there's a whole seven series of that show. Yeah. You've already talked a little bit about uh, Buffy being your comfort watch, but what's your relationship with the series? When I was a kid and it came out, I had actually already seen the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie with Christy Swanson. Oh, wow. And I was like a horror movie aficionado, so I loved it. And then the Buffy TV show came out and I remember writing in this little purple fluffy diary that I stole from like a Claire's. Um, <laughs> I was like... This show's horrible. They ruined the movie. <laughs> and I was so annoyed, but I kept watching because obviously it was very like in my wheelhouse of things that I would enjoy. And over the years, now my opinion has completely flipped where I think it is the greatest TV show of all time. And also I kind of cannot stand the Christy Swanson movie, or at least I, I haven't really returned to it as an adult and I don't feel any motivation to. I think that movie is a, it's got a, a, a camp, it's got a feel to it, but there are some real choices that were made. So yeah, I would say like for me, the show ended up like when it was airing, I had a very on again, off again relationship with it where I'd be like really into it for a while. And then I kind of get out of it. My very first boyfriend, whose name escapes me. I feel like he was a Brian or something, you know? This, like, awkward gay boy um, was so into it that at one point, like, he would just call me on the phone and talk to me for hours about everything that happened on Buffy. And then I had to stop watching it for, like, two years. Because I was like, this is too annoying. But then um, after the show finished, I revisited the show like I got it all on DVD this is back when DVDs were a thing mm. and became completely obsessed and you know ever since like at least once a year I'll watch the entire series all the way through so I have a pretty intense relationship to it but I just think I learned so much as a writer because the characterizations are so good mm. and I think they did such a good job of uh, even in some of the early seasons there's some plot holes but I think by the end they were such a machine of like really tying things up in funny and interesting ways mm. and really like emotional ways yes um, 
I have, again, controversial Buffy opinion, which is that I love the Marty Knox in years. Me too. Me too. (laughs) I mean, to quote the demon to Hoffman, why go for the kill when you could go for the pain? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the Marty Knox in years are all about how much suffering we can put these characters through. Mm. And that's my type of TV. Like, make them suffer. (laughs) Yeah, he wants to see good-looking people having a nice time. That's really boring. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I love Series 6, actually. Like, it's obviously got a bad rap sometimes but uh I think there's some incredible episodes of tv in there and I think you're right about it like I've learned a lot from Buffy as a writer it's you know I'm one of those people who wanted to be a writer because of Buffy I I don't think it gets its flowers in terms of kind of its place in prestige tv in like yeah I think it's sort of created a lot of the stuff that people are still doing now in terms Mm -hmm. of that kind of narrative tv yeah Yeah, I think Buffy is the bridge show Mm. when you think about it from the 90s tv series so with the x-files for example that is the ultimate monster of the week show yeah um and Buffy starts off that way Buffy is a monster of the week show (laughs) um but Within a couple of seasons, by like really the third season, it becomes about something bigger. Yes. And that is presaging what happens with the rise of prestige TV, where uh, as Buffy moves on, it becomes less and less Monster of the Week and more and more what we would recognize today as prestige TV, where you're telling one story that happens across an entire season. And I think this is why, for me... (laughs) Again, controversial opinion. I think series seven is the best series because they pretty much cut out the entire Monster of the Week format. Yes. Um, Which is, I think, why so many people really struggle with that season because they love that Monster of the Week thing. Mm. But my vibe with it is that they had just made that full transition to prestige TV and they were telling a bigger, more epic story like we would do now on TV. Yeah, I think this is part of why, like, um, there's, again, been kind of a revival of these Monster of the Week shows. And I would think of, like, the Charmed reboot here, Mm. where they were trying to take the exact format of the 90s Charmed show, which came out at the same time as Buffy. But Charmed never moved beyond the Monster of the Week. Mm. And that's the problem with the reboot of Charmed, is it really doesn't land very well in the 2010s, 2020s because we're now used to long form storytelling in a way that we weren't able to do really in the nineties yeah. or very few did like Twin Peaks did, but like very few others. Just speaking of the Charmed reboot, we get this little rumble every year or so about them remaking Buffy or like rebooting mm. Buffy. What do you make of that? A, I want to be in the writer's room <laughs> <laughs> desperately. And B, I mean, I, I could see lots of ways they could do it. What I would actually really love is a continuation of the series with the time that has elapsed since and dealing with uh, not quite the direction that the comic book went in, Hmm. but like just dealing with what does it mean to have a world full of Slayerettes? Yes. Yeah. Um, Because I think you could tell really interesting stories that would land in 2021 in a way that just simply rebooting Buffy isn't necessarily going to land. But that's the thing about Buffy really is that um, the Slayer mythos 
is such that like into each generation is born a slayer. So it's infinitely rebootable. And I, in my opinion, wouldn't feel weird to reboot like a lot of shows. Like you can't reboot Twin Peaks. Mm. Obviously there's the continuation of Twin Peaks that they did, uh, which is great. I'm a big fan, Mm -hmm. but you couldn't like try to redo it from the very beginning with a whole new cast and whatever, because what's the point? The story's being told. Yeah. But with, um, with Buffy, the mythos sets it up that there's going to be another one after Buffy dies. Yeah. And so it's like, uh, even if you forgot about season seven, you forget about all the Slayerettes, you know, there's always going to be one Slayer. So you could go anywhere in the world and set that show and it would be interesting and fresh because it's fresh to that character. Yeah. So I think it has so much potential, but unfortunately I don't think it's going to happen because a, it's been in development hell for almost 20 years and B with everything that's happened with Joss Whedon over the past few years, I, I really don't think anyone wants to touch him with a barge pole at yeah. this point. Do we need any context about Tabula Rasa before we kind of talk about it? Where does this come in the series? So it's right after the musical episode. Let's see. The musical episode. So it's series six. We're in Marty Noxon's time. Everybody suffers all the time. <laughs> and this season is about how um, it's about two things, really, ultimately. It's about the fact that Buffy died and was brought back to life by her friends who thought she was in hell. Mm-hmm. But oopsie daisy, turned out she was in heaven. <laughs> um, and the reason she was brought back is because of Willow's growing power as a witch, mm-hmm. um, as a lesbian witch. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's notable that her power grows substantially when she becomes a lesbian. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it makes sense. It's <laughs> <laughs> And uh, anyway, so Willow has this growing power, and but it's like unchecked. There's no one in the world who is more powerful in the Buffy universe than Willow Rosenberg. And unfortunately, power corrupts. And so in this season, witchcraft becomes a metaphor for addiction mm-hmm. and addiction to power and control and becoming... People don't really say this very often, but I think Willow is basically becoming an abusive girlfriend. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's what this episode is about. So Buffy spends most of the beginning of the season hiding the fact that she had actually been in heaven because she doesn't want to hurt her friend's feelings. (laughs) And then we have the musical episode where it's all revealed and everybody sings their song but feels really bad by the end. (laughs) And then it picks up like mere hours afterwards with the Scooby gang trying to figure out like, what do we do now that we know that we fucked up in like the worst way possible? Cause they can't like, they can't kill Buffy and send her back, you know? Um, so yeah, that's where it begins. And with a kind of fight between Willow and Tara, her girlfriend uh, over the fact that Willow's, addiction to magic is getting out of control yeah yeah uh, so that's that's kind of the the intro an interesting place to come into the series uh can you tell us what tabula rasa is about can you give us a bit of a a quick synopsis of the episode okay so basically what happens is we start with this argument with tara and willow and tara is basically ready to break up with willow 
Um, and because Willow used magic on her to erase her memory in the previous episode. And obviously Tara has some trauma from the last season where her mind was uh, erased by the god Glory, Glorificus, <laughs> uh, who, in my opinion, is canonically a trans woman. Oh, wow. Um, yes. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it makes sense when you think about it. It but, absolutely um, does. <laughs> but anyway, so... Um, They come to an agreement that Willow will try not to use magic for a week. But by the next morning, when they're all supposed to meet up at the magic shop to discuss basically what's been going on, uh, Willow is struggling to deal with uh, like getting ready without just magicking herself beautiful. Mm. And um, she sends them all on ahead of her and ends up casting a spell. And the spell is in theory to erase Tara's memory again so that they won't be fighting, which is like extreme addiction behavior to think like I can drink my way out of my drinking problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Can relate. And um Obviously, this backfires and ends up erasing the memory of all of their friends. The B story of the episode is that um, Spike has been gambling for kittens because that's what vampires and creatures do is they gamble (laughs) kittens. And he owes some kittens to a shark in a suit. (laughs) A lone shark. I love that stupid joke. It's so good. It's so good. I I love also that the loan shark, when he's like, you know, trying to turn the screws on Spike and Spike is like, just give me some time and I'll get you your kittens. And then the loan shark is like, time is what turns kittens into cats. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, they all get their memories erased and then wake up uh, with no idea who they are. And uh, as they are trying to piece this together, the lone shark and his crew of uh, vampires in suits come pounding on the door of the magic shop. And so the whole episode is about these characters um, trying to find out who they are and through the trials that they uh, experience, the kind of deepest parts of them end up coming out. So Buffy, who (laughs) names herself Joan, um, realizes that she is a vampire slayer. Spike, uh, who gets the very unfortunate name of Randy Giles, (laughs) um, who says, why didn't you just call me Horny Giles? Um, So Spike um, ends up realizing he's a vampire. Uh, Willow realizes... I think I'm kind of gay. And, um, you know, Anya and uh, Giles realize that they own the shop, but unfortunately are under the false impression that they are married. I fucking love that, though. As I think. <laughs> like, that is such a... I think they're two characters that work really well together and two actors that have got great chemistry that it surprises me they didn't put them together that often. They're just brilliant. Like she is just a gift of a character and an actor, I think. Yeah, I really think Emma Caulfield, the actress, is so underappreciated. And I'm really glad that she ended up in WandaVision and got like some recognition for that. Because I feel like since Buffy, she has not really had a lot of roles. No. Um, Which is such a shame because she's a 
pitch perfect comedic actress as Anya. Like she's so good. I think, you know, over the years, I used to be strongly identified with Willow over the years and sometimes like Buffy and Faith. But um, now as an adult, when I go back and watch episodes, I think Anya is not only the character that I identify most, most with, I think she's also just the best character. Like she's, endlessly funny she's often right yes but she's she's got this tragic thing where she has been so disconnected from human culture for thousands of years that she um is not able to understand the illogical but totally normal things that contemporary humans do (laughs) and so she's always running up really tragically against the fact that she is basically like culturally different from every single person around her and nobody fundamentally ever understands her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then all, you know, her backstory is hilarious. Like she's a capitalist now, but it turns out she used to be a communist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but she was a communist when she was a demon, but as a human, she's a capitalist. I love so it. Funny. Yeah. I just adore her. I adore the actress. And then I think Anthony Stewart had um, trans ally. Mm. Um, I think he is so good his giles he's he plays the straight man on the show you know Mm. and it's one of several times where they basically just mortify him uh sexually because there's also like it's like every time any supernatural being messes with giles head he ends up hooking up with one of the women on the show but it's always the most awkward woman for him to hook up with so (laughs) earlier he hooks up with Buffy's mom and they have sex on top of a police car and then this time um when all their memories come back to them he is in the middle of kissing Anya and they're just (laughs) the two of them are just so horrified by the situation (laughs) it's so good it's so good um i love all the stuff with buffy and dawn in this episode as well i'm a dawn summer's apologist um Uh and i won't hear a bad (laughs) word against (laughs) but um all of the stuff in this episode i I think they're incredibly well written as sisters like it's an incredibly realistic family dynamic a lot of the time yeah particularly dawn as like little sister um Mm -hmm. I think people often think about Dawn as like being written younger than she is. I think a lot of that is her being a little sister and kind of being a brat a lot of the time. Um, And a lot of it is like, I think you could kind of read the trauma into Dawn's character. Like Uh people don't necessarily, when they're talking about her and kind of criticizing the way that character is written, don't necessarily um, think about the fact that like Dawn burst into life, found out that she wasn't real, then her mum died, then her sister died, and then her sister came back to life. (laughs) (laughs) And and she's definitely the kid at school who people are like, was that not your sister at the top of that giant tower jumping off it? Like, are you you okay? Like, what? (laughs) Yeah, I love her as a character. I think she's incredibly well written. And I love her in this episode. Yeah, just all of that dynamic stuff is so lovely. Um, Yeah, the two of them end up being very sweet together in this mm. episode, rather than 
Because their memories are erased, the annoyances that, yes. you know, an older sister and a younger sister have built up with each other are not there. And so that moment where they piece together that they're sisters, they're like genuinely really happy and sweet about it. And mm. I think we don't see that often between Buffy and Dawn. No. So no. it's it's quite refreshing in a way. Again, this is why I think like every time I watch a Buffy episode, I'm like, oh, the writing on this is actually so smart all the time. Mm. Um, because it's giving us, it, it slowly reintroduces us to who these characters are fundamentally without all of the added years of trauma that we've been with them through. Yes. That is a skillful thing for some writers to do. I gotta say, uh, I would, I definitely struggle to do that myself. Yes. <laughs> no, I think it's so smart. It's such a smart show a lot of the time. What do you make of Spike and Buffy? Or like Spike as a character and then Spike and Buffy. I love Spike. I can't say that I don't. I think he's like funny and mean and whatever. And I thought their romance, I'm of two minds about their romance because sometimes I'm like, this works really, really well. And I think it works better than Angel and Buffy did. Yeah. Because Angel and Buffy were like too perfect. They were like the Twilight version of that romance, yes. you know? Yeah. And obviously they kind of presage Twilight, but like I think. The reason Buffy works better with Spike is because it's less perfect, mm-hmm. because he's not a good person, ultimately. Yeah. And um, he is able to provide for her, I don't know, just access to something emotionally that she would never get with that like puppy love thing with Angel. Mm. I don't know. So I've, I've always liked it. The one thing that I think the series... And I think most people acknowledge that it was a bad idea. But um, later in the series, when Spike assaults Buffy or attempts to assault Buffy, I think that's the one point where I was like, I don't know if this was actually the smart idea on the part of the writers. Yeah. Obviously, they needed something to propel Spike away so he could go get his soul. But like, I think it did a disservice to that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in season seven, they manage, they work with it really well. And that, you know, speaks to the strength of the writer's room. I think the strength of that is that they don't pretend it never happened. And like, yeah. it's just sort of complicated in the way that a lot of Buffy is. And I think that's what's powerful about it. But I think you're right that it does feel like one of the only missteps that they make across a yeah. pretty perfect series. What do you make of Xander? generally and in this episode specifically (laughs) oh xander (laughs) complicated feelings about xander i think i used to like xander a lot more and as i've gotten older and i've realized that xander is the stand-in for who we now realize that joss whedon is as a person Mm. um i find xander's behavior more and more to be incredibly sexist throughout the series yeah and like very demeaning to all of the women characters. Uh, Like he's basically an incel, (laughs) Um, especially before he gets with Anya. He like chills out a little bit when he gets with Anya and I love their relationship. Yes. Um, I'm not a Xander hater by any means, but I think um, he is the I character for Joss Whedon. He's the in for Joss Whedon. And I think Joss assumed that that would be the in character 
for audiences and it wasn't yes yeah i think think the end character ends up being buffy yeah but i think he originally set up xander to be as our like normal guy that you can identify with who leads you in to the story and then in this episode Oh, just as throughout the series, Xander is mostly useless. Uh, he doesn't really do very much. He like assumes that Willow is his girlfriend. Well, she's like, wait, maybe I'm gay. Um, and then he like fights a vampire a little bit. They didn't really give him very much story in this one. I think no. he's a bit underutilized. I love the stuff with Willow and Tara in this episode as well. Like that everyone is falling apart, but they give us this uh-huh. episode where we kind of get Willow realizing she's gay and that she's in love with Tara. Like, it's so lovely. And I love that when they sort of wake up and they can't remember who they are, Willow thinks that her and Tara were study buddies because they go to the same college. And I'm like, oh, that is fucking perfect. (laughs) So good. Yeah. And then, like, the shared looks between them, because especially the second half of the episode before the reveal of uh, Willow's spell when uh, Willow is realizing that she's gay and becomes very obviously attracted to Tara. And then there's not a lot of um, dialogue there, but they have these mm. moments where they're like very obviously attracted to each other. Um, and yeah, I just think it's great. I think Tara is such a great character. I'm so sad she died. But uh, yeah, Tara in this episode, she goes through the ringer. Like she starts off so upset and then she gets her memory erased And then when she comes to, she has to struggle with the fact that not only has her mind been violated for now a third time, uh, which she clearly is very traumatized by, but also she has been betrayed so deeply by the woman that she loves. It's that moment where you are a person in the life of someone who is struggling with addiction and they have given you all the promises and they couldn't even make it a day, Yeah, you know? Um, And that's heart, heart wrenching for anyone to go through. And I think they play it really well um, because I think both the actors and the writers understand that this is about addiction. Yes. So yeah, Amber Benson forever. I really want, (laughs) you know, I want so good for Amber Benson. I just want nice things to happen for her. I want her to get like a really good role or like direct a new feature or something. Yes. Yes. (laughs) What makes this a very special episode for you? Is there something that like resonates or like a particular scene that you go back to? I think for me, what makes this a special episode is that you know, people struggle with this episode because it comes after Once More with Feeling, the musical episode that everyone's obsessed with. And that, yes, we all went to live sing-alongs for at some point. Um, <laughs> I went to a couple of them. <laughs> you know, that that episode gets so much praise. And then I just feel like the rest of the season, people don't really appreciate it. But I think this is one of the episodes in season six where you really see the strength of both the writing and the acting. Yes. And the kind of go for the guts uh, writing style in particular, where they managed to do this amazing thing where it's bookended by such heartbreaking scenes, but in the middle, they give you this fun distraction 
of having these characters like hilariously forget who they are and have to deal with these improbable situations. But because it's bookended by tragedy, you know the whole way through, like it's just mounting dread for the moment when it gets unleashed, which you know it's going to happen. Plus, like, is any TV show that includes a live performance of Michelle Branch, Goodbye to You, (gasps) not a special episode? (laughs) Because I think that alone qualifies it. I mean, not my favorite of the people who played at the Bronze on Buffy, but definitely (laughs) a moment. (laughs) I need to know who was your favorite now. Chibomato, um, obviously. I, I was just gonna say, I think Chibomato is like the funniest one yeah. because it's like absolute nonsense. Um, I mean, I love Chibomato's music, but it's just like wow, nineties. Um, I think my favorite, uh, obviously, Amy Mann is like the funny one in season seven because they actually give her a line to acknowledge, <laughs> like. I hate playing vampire towns, um, which is just so funny because she's like, gives you nothing in the face. Like she's so deadpan. Um, But my favorite has to be Biff Naked, Canadian Queen, um, who I forget. I think the song is, uh, oh God, what is the song? I think it's the, one of her sad songs actually. Mm -hmm. Um, But Yeah, I love Biff Naked, a big fan, uh, was very delighted when she followed me on Twitter, no big deal. (laughs) Um, But they have her in an episode that's really sad in like season, I forget if it's season four or season three. Hmm. It might be season four because I think it's like at a college house party or something. Yeah. Yeah, and they just, they have, you know there which is like again a really odd choice because Biff Naked was never really big outside Canada Mm. I just feel like whoever was doing the music programming on that show was like making some real choices it's a very specific type of music like there is a genre of music that I will call sounds like it could have been on a Buffy soundtrack because it's like very much like (laughs) women singers sort of 90s rock sort of middle of the road rock it's just so specific it's very Lilith Fair you know but without the headliner (laughs) like yeah it's the lower tier Lilith Fair performers (laughs) it's the women in song CDs of the 90s yes which is I just feel like if they ever do remake it I really want them to pick whoever is like the Tori Amos of the moment because imagine if Tori had been on that show and she definitely would have been (laughs) perfect if they had gotten Tori Amos you know uh i think at one point they had the pretenders on the show Mm. which is another really weird gen x choice um but imagine if the show had just been a little bit higher budget and they had gotten people like smashing pumpkins and hole (laughs) and like what that would have just knocked it out of the park like another show for the time period daria which used all the mtv music at the time Mm. and thus has become a licensing nightmare to try to get (laughs) on streaming services yes um I remember at one point with Daria, they released a DVD where they had cut all the music and put in just generic music oh, throughout no, the whole thing. No. <laughs> and it really doesn't work. <laughs> um, the one thing the Gen Xers were really good at was like 
the obsession with kind of um, alternative rock. And when you take that out, it's like, ooh, uh, some of these shows don't really carry so well. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Michelle Branch, goodbye to you. I'll let her sing us out at the end of this episode. I can't believe that's how they end that episode, too. It's, like, so overwrought um, as, like, Willow sat on the floor of her bathroom crying and (laughs) Tara's leaving and Giles is leaving on a plane because he thinks Buffy needs to learn to stand on her own. Oh, wow. That (laughs) whole storyline is very strange. (laughs) Like, I know they needed to get rid of uh, Tony Head because he didn't want to be in America anymore, but what a choice like she did just come back from the dead like i think you can give her a few more weeks Giles. Like. yeah i'm it's such a shame they were um floating this idea of doing a british spin-off of him as the show ripper mm. where he would be uh a lone watcher in london and what a show that would have been i yeah. really feel like that could have been an incredible series and like could have had a totally different tone from Buffy and Angel. I think it really would have done well and would have given us like the British Buffy equivalent, which we haven't had except for the briefly lived, but very good show. Crazy head. Oh, I don't um, know that show at all. Oh my God. You've got to watch it. I think it's on uh, I think it's on Netflix or it might be on BBC iPlayer hmm. or something, but it's one series long. And it is about a young white woman and a young black woman who don't know each other in London, uh, who realize that vampires and monsters exist. And the white woman uh, has some kind of like Buffy-like superpower, basically, to deal with them. And yeah, it's really funny. It's very much Buffy the Vampire Slayer, (laughs) to be clear. (laughs) Um, But like set in London, basically. And I'm, it's such a shame that it didn't get a second series because I feel like it really had legs. I think it could have gone somewhere. Yeah. Um, it's an absolute delight to watch. I'm going to check that out. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Is there anywhere people can find you? That sounds really sinister. <laughs> Where can people find you on the internet if they want to? Yeah. They can catch me outside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, People can follow me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter or at Odofemi on Instagram. Although Twitter is my like real home. Twitter mm. is where I'm much more fun and entertaining. <laughs> um, and yeah, they can also check out my website, odofemi.com, O-D-O-F-E-M-I.com. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank what you a for, pleasure. Thank you for coming on and talking. And there we have it, Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Morgan M. Page. Uh, really loved having that chat with somebody who obviously loves Buffy as much as I do and is re-watching the show as often as I am. Um, lots of kind of going around the houses and lots of spoilers, I think, for things that were slightly outside of our remit this week. But I hope you'll forgive us. I'm sure most people who are listening to this have already seen Buffy before. And if you haven't, you've had 20 years to do it um my very special guest next week will be nikki rooney who's a writer from glasgow uh had a really great chat with nikki about an episode of star trek the next generation called data's day which i'd never seen and i have to admit i'd never actually seen a proper episode of star trek before uh this one and i really really got a lot out of it and really enjoyed it and got a lot out of my chat with Nikki. Um, So you can look forward to that next week. I was able to watch that episode of 
Star Trek on Amazon. They have the whole series there um, on Amazon Prime. So you can check that out there. Give Jeff Bezos your your five quid a month or whatever it is um, again. Um, and in the meantime, don't touch those dials and I will see you next week. I want you, but I'm not giving in this time.